water is being turned into a powerful weapon in many parts of the world. So you've got the changing nature of warfare, population growth, and then also environmental change as the three main factors. On this episode of the American Scientist podcast, the use of water as a weapon. It's part of our 2019 special issue on the future of water. I'm Robert Frederick. In parts of the world where there's already serious political instability, water scarcity and climate change seem to be making matters worse. In the 2019 special issue about the future of water, Marcus King writes about using water as a weapon. King, a researcher at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs, studies the social contexts that lead to water weaponization. He spoke with senior consulting editor Corey Powell, who edited King's article. Here's their interview. What is water weaponization and why do you consider it such a serious problem? So water weaponization is the use of water itself or water infrastructure by parties in a conflict to gain either strategic or tactical advantage over an adversary. Why it's important is it's increasingly being used as a tool of terrorism, and it's increasingly being used as a strategy. So we're trying to prevent normalization of this sort of strategy. The possibility of, of using water as a weapon has been around for a very long time, and water has played a role in conflict for a very long time, but it's different now. Yeah, I think there's several factors in play, although I've concentrated on climate change. What's changing is that water stress is becoming more severe globally. So water itself is a more precious commodity. 1.8 billion people will be living in areas of water scarcity, and two-thirds will be under some stress in the next 10 years. Also, we have unprecedented population growth. I've been looking at the Middle East and North Africa, and that's, that part of the world's experienced the highest rate of population growth of any region in the world. So you've got more people consuming water, more stress on water due to things like environmental change, but what's also changing is the um, character of war itself. More wars are being fought within countries. There's been a rise of terrorism in the last few decades. And so the perpetrators of this type of water weaponization that I've looked at are subnational groups, more specifically violent extremist organizations. And it's only been since about 2000, 2001, where these types of organizations have really developed. So you've got the changing nature of warfare, population growth, and then also environmental change as the three main factors. So I understand why you focus uh, most on Middle East and North Africa. From your perspective, what we're seeing there, is that the beginning of a greater risk or possibly a, a, a broader risk for other parts of the world as well? Yes. Yeah, so my focus on uh, the immediate near term in the Middle, Middle East and North Africa has had to do with the fact that there's been acute droughts there in the last uh, decade or so. But what other parts of the world are also at risk? I've been thinking especially Asia. So many parts of Asia, but one example would be places where I said internal wars are, are a growing trend. So any place that has insurgencies, for example, the Philippines has an Islamic insurgency that's been growing in that area. Perhaps Myanmar, which has some subnational groups that are in you know, a state of sort of constant rebellion against the government. So I would say the Philippines and Myanmar and Southeast Asia. But another acute example would be India and Pakistan. 
so there's been tensions between each of the nations over uses of the water, uses of the water itself within the river systems, but also in addition to cross-border tension, there's been violent extremist groups that have been taking advantage of conditions created by water stress. Something that's been in the news has been the idea of water mafias. So these are criminal organizations that operate in cities like Karachi, in Pakistan, some of the larger cities in India that have stepped in and, and they're providing water in areas where the government's not able to do so anymore and, they're, and therefore they're getting more, you know, more legitimacy by being able to be the ones to do this. And so this is one of the things that's causing growth and strengthening some of these violent organizations. And then finally, China. You wouldn't think of China necessarily because it is a place that's very stable internally but it's also a place where there's growing water stress. So it might not necessarily be water weaponization at this point, but if some of the splinter groups, some of the militant organizations like Islamic minorities within China were to gain strength and become powerful enough, there could be some contention over water resources and misuse of water as a weapon. One common theme that I'm hearing in all these descriptions is that parts of the world where there's already political instability for other reasons, water scarcity and climate change seem to be making them worse. Is that an ongoing trend? Is that something that you see in your, your research? Yes, exactly. So um, in my research, I look at what is the social context within a country to begin with. And so a principle that we've borrowed from climate insecurity is this idea of a threat multiplier. So what happens is water scarcity or water stress comes along and it, it aggravates already existing cleavages within society. So the cleavages might have to do with different tribes, different religions, people that work in different sectors. So there can be income disparities or the types of jobs that people do. For example, herders versus farmers. These are the types of cleavages that already exist in the society. Another one is just economic disparity. So states that tend to discriminate against minority populations are creating conditions that can lead to this sort of violence. So, I mean, these seem like very, very broad and, and sweeping challenges. What kinds of things can be done to reduce the use of water as a weapon or to, to sort of push back against uh, this trend of the weaponization of water? Well, I think the goal here is exactly, as you said, to push against the trend. And I think the problem would be normalization of the weaponization of water, becoming sort of an, a, a norm of international warfare. The perpetrators that we've looked at, as I mentioned, are subnational groups. And so you've got some inherent disadvantages when you're dealing with subnational groups. And that's because they don't see international agreements as applying to them. So what can be done? I think it's really wrapped up in the approach of the government, the United States government and others to the war on terror. So waging the war on terror, thinking about it more as a development problem. I mentioned that water weaponization, you know, relates to conditions of absolute scarcity. So the idea is to have a development program where infrastructure is being built that would provide more water for people. Boreholes are being dug. So we're fighting against that scarcity within our development program. And all that is wrapped into approaches to fighting the war on terror. Also, more rigid enforcement of the international agreements that already exist to prohibit the use of environment in war. 
There is already an additional protocol to the Geneva Conventions prohibiting use of the environment for purposes of war. There's a lesser known agreement called the Convention on the Prohibition of Environmental Modification for War that already prevents this sort of behavior. So the idea is how do you then get subnational groups to respect this sort of um, regulation? And so uh, the best way to do that, I think, is to treat water weaponization as just another sort of war crime, but to take it as seriously as war crimes such as genocide, putting people in prison, subjecting people to the International Court of Justice in The Hague. We have to think about water crimes just as seriously as we do about other war crimes. Has there been any progress in doing that, or is that a a job for the future? I I think it's something we need to tackle now because of the serious consequences um, that would result from what I was calling normalization of this type of of warfare. Right. And then I guess the other side of the question, if we don't do a good enough job uh, enforcing those international norms, what's the risk if, if we allow the normalization to continue? Yeah, I think a great risk is to the legitimacy of governments that are important to U.S. national security interests. So if water is being used as a weapon within nations, for example, Pakistan, for example, Somalia, if water weaponization is a tool that's increasing the instability in these nations, then nations that are important to the U.S. for national security reasons, those governments there will start to lose legitimacy. And what's called ungoverned spaces will continue to grow. And in turn, this will only support the development of more extremist organizations. So it's the idea of helping countries that are important to national security interests maintain their legitimacy with their own populations. One thing that's been surprising to me in reading about your research is this is happening right now. This has been happening in the aftermath of the 2011 uh, Syrian civil war and, and at other places. What's been most surprising to you as you've been doing this research? Yeah, so I think the the most surprising thing to me has been um, the the scale of it. So I started looking at three organizations um, in in the research here. It was ISIS in Syria and Iraq, Boko Haram in Nigeria, and the actions of al-Shabaab in Somalia. Um, I spent about a year with the Nigeria piece, and, and looking at Nigeria, I I saw that there were actually more casualties during this war in the middle, in what's called the middle belt of Nigeria, the area of the Sahel. There were more casualties between, with the violence between the farmers and the herders than there was more widely in the better known story of Boko Haram. So Boko Haram has been known as the um, perpetrator of, of violence as the main terrorist group within Nigeria. But when you really looked at it, it was this farmer herder violence of the semi-nomadic Fulani herdsmen versus the Christian pastoralists and the idea that the herds were trampling the crops of the farmers um, and just the violence associated with the access to the water holes was a lot bigger deal than than we had understood before. And do governments and humanitarian organizations, are they even prepared for this? Because it certainly seems like the circumstances are changing more quickly than the institutions are adapting to it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, but the institution that I, you know, I'm concerned with and I have some expertise with, you know, our defense institutions and the military. So I think the military needs to be out in front on this. U.S. military doctrine 
you know, needs to be more cognizant of the potential that water could be weaponized so that our soldiers in the field, for example, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers can assist countries with water infrastructure. We can dig boreholes. We can be ready for the disasters when, when um, municipal water structures are, are destroyed. So it's just um, really um, inculcating that, that um, view and the understanding of water problems into um, our military deployments and thinking. And so I think the military is um, out ahead of, of this compared to say the development practitioners or foreign policy specialists as a whole. Uh, well, this has certainly been a, an enlightening and somewhat, frankly, troubling conversation. Is there anything else? Is there anything that I that we haven't talked about here that you think is important to know about water and water weaponization? So I get I get a question from a lot of people, and and you know, and it makes sense in certain ways. And, and this comes you know from people more in the scientific community than in the security community. And so what the question is is isn't desalinization just the answer to the water scarcity problem. Right. Um, and, and so, yes and no. Desalinization is, is becoming more and more effective, and, and it's the, the scale, the, the capacity of desalinization plants is becoming greater and greater. But there are certain conditions that are also necessary for successful desalinization that don't exist in these countries that I've been looking at. So in countries that have political instability, you really don't have the stable climate for investment that you need to build a, a large-scale desalinization plant. Also, for a large-scale desalinization facility, a lot of energy is required. So then you might have to do the ancillary power plants and the grid infrastructure that supports all of this. And so desalinization is, a, is an important answer, and it works in countries like United Arab Emirates with a lot of capital or advanced countries that have um, high technology like Israel, but there really isn't a solution in a failing state like Somalia or, or Yemen or potentially even Egypt that do have access to salt water, but really don't have these other factors that are necessary for investment. But desalinization is a very important part of the solution here and it should be pursued at scale. So in that sense, it sounds like yeah, the issues of water supply have a lot of commonality with the issues of food supply, that it's not necessarily just the, the total amount of availability, but also the problems of distribution and political control. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Some people you, you know, think about water security or water co conflict potential as getting the right amount of water to the right people at the right time. And I think that's the exact same challenge with food security. So the, the two overlap. And then also, of course, food has high water content, so manipulation of food aid or resources can also be another form of, of water weaponization. So the two really go hand in hand, as you said. Well, thank you so much for, for a great conversation. Great. Thank you so much. That was Marcus King of George Washington University speaking with senior consulting editor Corey Powell about the weaponization of water. You can read King's article, Dying for a Drink, in the 2019 special issue on The Future of Water. Find it on newsstands or online at americanscientist.org. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. I'm Robert Frederick. Thanks for joining us.